In the mid-1980s, Yuji Horii and Koichi Nakamura went to the Macworld Conference and Expo. There, they were introduced to the genre-defining role-playing game Wizardry. Almost immediately, it inspired them to enact positive change in their current project, the NES port of the Portopia serial murder case. But as Yuji Horii thought more about the game, he began to see ways in which he could improve on it, and most importantly, make it appeal to more people. And it was this idea, this basic concept of making wizardry, that appealed to everyone, that planted a seed, and it grew in his head. It grew and it grew and it grew into one of the most influential role-playing games of its time. Today, we're going to tell you the story of Dragon Quest. As part of its tale, we'll learn about the history of the company Enix and the various notable persons involved in the game, including Hori and Nakamura. So take a seat and join us as we set off to slay the Dragon Lord on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good afternoon and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 143rd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, console, a person, a technology, just something relevant to this week in gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Dragon Quest, which was originally released for the Nintendo Entertainment System, or technically the Famicom, on May 27th, 1986. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who always sees the end from the very beginning. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, how do you do it? How, how, how can you always see the finish line? It's always the end if you don't get started. Oh, way to turn that into a lazy man's saying. That's great. I love it. Absolutely, Dave. You know how it goes. I do. We're very lazy. We don't work harder. We work smarter. Right you are, sir. And speaking of working or not working, rather, what have you been playing? Well, Dave, this last week has seen some Rocket League, some RuneScape, and some Dragon Ball Xenoverse 2. And that's about it. How about yourself? We played Rocket League. I played Rocket League over a couple days, and I put a few more hours into Resident Evil Village this weekend. Not very much, though, but enough to finish the, I don't know, first castle in the game. So Nice. So, Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior, depending on where you're from. Any familiarity with it? I've heard of it, but it's not something that I've played. None I've definitely of... seen um, like stills from it, and I'm sure I've seen gameplay um, at the anything moment. I can't. The... Anything in the series? Uh, I can't say that I have played any of the Dragon Quest. Huh. That's that's all right. That's all right. It's okay. I don't I don't think it's as popular 
I don't think it's as it's not as popular anymore as some of the other RPGs. So that's not surprising at all. Um, the modern ones are good, though. You should try them. I say that about every game we redo, though, don't I? Uh, yeah, it. that that you do. Yeah, you should try it. Well, I tend not to do crappy video games unless I'm specifically doing an episode on crappy video games. And then I literally I know there's been at least one episode where I've been like, I can't in good conscience recommend this to anybody. <laughs> so I just don't remember what it was. Huh? Yeah, I couldn't tell you, Dave. Well. September 22nd, 1975. We're going back. We're wow. going way back. That we are. Yashihiro Fukushima founded Adansha Boshu Service Center as a company that focused on advertising tabloids for real estate. On February 5th, 1980, Adansha Boshu created a wholly owned subsidiary, Adansha Fudusan. Man, this is going to trip me up the whole time. For the purpose of specializing in real estate trading and brokerage. The next year, the company was renamed Idansha Systems, and in 1982, it made an unsuccessful attempt to become a national real estate brokerage chain. So, with that endeavor failing and falling to the wayside, Fukushima decided to make the jump that so many Japanese companies that we've looked at made about this time. And that is the emerging video game market. He saw it. He saw it was growing. He saw the popularity increasing. And he said, that's where I'm going to put my money. So in August of 1982, Adansha Fudusan was renamed the Enix Corporation. Now, the name Enix was a play on both the first modern computer, which is known as the ENIAC, and the mythological phoenix. Get it? ENIAC phoenix? Enix? It's kind of clever, oh, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. It does make yeah. sense. Yeah. But there was one problem. They were a real estate company. They were not a video game company. They were not a video game developer. They were not a video game publisher. His idea was to be a video game publisher. That was kind of his thought as he went into this. And he didn't have game designers employed. So... Fukushima decided to order to organize rather a competition named the Enix Game Hobby Program Contest, which was advertised in various computer and manga magazines in Japan. It offered a prize of a million yen altogether or about ten thousand dollars. And that million yen was there were different prizes. The maximum was a million yen. Uh, or about $10,000 for a game prototype, which that which Enix could publish. And that would be roughly, I looked it up, accounting for inflation in the past 40 years, it would be roughly $31,000 today, which was the maximum price. Not too bad. Not too bad at all. So, needless to say, aspiring game designers and programmers started to send their game ideas in. And this would have been 1982, in February of 1983, Enix ended up publishing their first 13 games, all of which were winners in some way, shape, or form in the first ever game hobby program contest. Now, they include some stuff that's not well known. There's uh, at least not well known by uh, North American audiences. 
There is a turn-based strategy game by Kazuru Morita called Morita's Battlefield. There was an adult game by Tadashi Makimura called Guest Makiro Hashimoto. There was an adventure game by Tohiyuki Asanuma called Psycho's Adventure. That one, that one I know got over here. A maze game called Underground Monster. And most notably, there was a designer named Koichi Nakamura who turned in a game called Door Door and a writer for a weekly manga anthology called Weekly Shonen Jump. His name was Yuki Hori, and he turned in a sports game named Love Match Tennis. Now, as a member of the math club at Maru Game High School, Koichi Nakimura wrote a version of a shooter called Galaxy Wars in the basic programming language on his Tandy TRS-80. Excited about video games and the future they provided, he started to deliver newspapers so that he could buy the popular computer of the time, which was the NEC PC-8001. So he delivers newspapers, saves up all this money, buys the PC-8001, and with it, he starts to submit programs to local magazines that would advertise for people to send code in, and they could get paid to publish the code. So in February of 1981, IO Magazine publishes a machine code input tool that Nakamura wrote, and that netted him 20,000 yen. During spring break of his first year in high school, he cloned the arcade video game called Space Panic, named it Alien Part 2. It was published in the May 1981 issue of IO Magazine, released on cassette tape, and that earned him 200,000 yen in royalties. In the January of 1982 issue, he cloned Konami's Scramble. Funny enough, we talked about Scramble last week when we covered the legal aspect because it was involved in one of the legal uh, battles that we covered. Konami's Scramble was also released on cassette, his clone of it, and this earned him royalties of a million yen. A clone of River Patrol called River Rescue was published in Macacon Gamebook 4 of IO, bringing his total high school earnings from submissions to that magazine to over 2 million yen. So $60,000 roughly, because we just did the math on a million, $60,000 roughly, a little over $60,000, that's his high school earnings in programming submissions. Wow. Can you imagine that, though, having 64K coming out of high school? I mean, that would be awesome. That would be phenomenal. (laughs) That'd be dangerous. So because of all the submissions, he was Nakamura, really well known amongst all the uh, amongst PC hobbyists, because many of them were subscribed to IO magazine. Now, during the third year of his high school in 1982, that was his third year. He entered Enix's game hobby program contest with the game door door. Now door door is a single screen puzzle platform game in which players trap aliens behind doors throughout each stage. So basically it's got a bunch of doors and multi-platform stages. You run across the door from the side the handle is on. The door opens up. If a, if an alien is chasing you, he goes into the door, and then you run past the door the other way to close it and trap the alien. Really simple, really clever puzzle game. Like other games at the time, it technically never ends. It has 50 stages, but once you finish the 50th, which might I add required perfect timing, there was no room for error in the 50th stage. 
Uh, once you finish it, it just resets back to the back to stage one. Mostly arcade games and other titles at that time did that. We we've, we've talked about lots of other titles that have been that way. So Door Door was a critical and commercial success. It was published on just about every Japanese computer platform, including the PC eight thousand one we talked about, the Fujitsu FM seven, Sharp's MZ two thousand. Uh, between them. It sold over 200,000 copies on PC platforms. And in 1985, it was also ported over to Nintendo's Famicom and is generally considered to be a classic title in the Nintendo Famicom library. So, very popular. So, after graduating with a literature degree, Yuji Horii, on the other hand, became a freelance writer for various newspapers, comics, and magazines. Like everyone else, he entered Enix's context in 1982 with the idea his was a tennis video game named Love Match Tennis. And this is one of the games chosen to be published. And that success motivated him to switch from lit to becoming a video game designer. And while Love Match Tennis was notable for bringing Yuji Horii into Enix, it was his next game that was really an important step for both he and Koichi Nakimura. The Portopia Serial Murder Case. We've talked about that game before, Rob. Have we, Dave? We have. Portopia Mm. is an adventure game that was designed by Yuji Horii. It was published by Enix originally in June of 1983. If I recall correctly, and I know I'm recalling correctly, it is one of the games that Hideo Kojima of Metal Gear fame cites as his direct inspiration for going into video game development. His two primary inspirations, one was Portopia and the other was Super Mario Brothers. And truth be told, Portopia is just a notable game for the adventure game genre in general. It's typically cited as as a very notable game in the early parts of of adventure genre. But for our story today, it's important to know that in 1985, Enix decided to port this popular adventure game over to the Nintendo Famicom, and they turned to Nakamura to help Hori with the project. Now, after porting Door Door to various platforms, Nakamura had earned a lot of money, and he used that to open up his own video game development studio named Chunsoft in April of 1984. Now, like I said in the beginning, Enix had wanted to be a video game development company, and in the first bunch of the hobbyist game program games, they served as both publisher and as developer. And then afterwards, they encouraged a lot of the winners of that contest to open up their own development studios that they could publish for. So Nakamura had Chunsoft, and Enix turned to Chunsoft to help port Portopia over to the Famicom. So, of course... Portopia was originally a PC game. You have keyboard and mouse and they're porting it over to the Famicom, which is the Nintendo entertainment system. So, you know, controller. So in order to accommodate the the Nintendo's limited controls, Yuji Horii had to redesign the entire interface to work better on consoles. Now, during the development for Portopia, uh, both Horii and Nakamura went to what's known as the Macworld Conference and Expo. And at that expo, they were introduced to the pivotal role-playing game wizardry 
Now, we've covered wizardry in a previous episode. It is like the granddaddy of the role-playing video game genre. It and Ultima are, you know, are two of the the games that just that they laid the foundation for role-playing games as we know it. So their experience with with wizardry inspired them to add a dungeon crawling area to Portopia for the port to the Famicom in which the detective explored various locations. Now both guys really liked wizardry and it inspired Hori to design a game similar to it because he wanted to expose Japanese audiences to role-playing games. And at the time, role-playing games were pretty much mostly made, with a few exceptions, by Western companies. So he took Wizardry, and they were also exposed at some point to Ultima, and they used those games as an inspiration to create what they wanted, what they believed to be a new kind of role-playing game. And this idea was a role-playing game that didn't rely on previous experience with Dungeons and Dragons that didn't require hundreds of hours of repetitive fighting, and most of all, a role-playing game that could appeal to any kind of gamer. In Yuji Hori's mind, he needed to simplify the role-playing game system and have players associate themselves as the hero. So as the game progressed, the hero became stronger, um... And they could do this in a very streamlined, simple, straightforward way. And also, he took what he learned from Portopia. He took the streamlined interface and he integrated that into into this design. And most importantly, what he took away from Portopia was a, a greater emphasis on storytelling and emotional involvement. That was, that was what he wanted to bring to the role-playing genre. So Hori and his team at Chunsoft, the team at Chunsoft, began developing what would become Dragon Quest in 1985. Now they knew that the Famicom was going to be the ideal platform for Dragon Quest uh, because the games that they were developing for the Famicom were generally starting to sell better than, than their PC ports of games. And they wanted to contrast it from arcade games so that players could continue playing from where they left off if they had to step away. And as part of their desire to make games appeal to everyone, they decided to make death not permanent, meaning that when you die, you're resurrected at a previous save point. Up until this point, that wasn't really a thing for these role-playing games. They were more designed from Dungeons & Dragons, and in D&D, when your character dies, it dies, you know? Uh, yeah, I suppose I... I haven't admittedly never really. done D and D, so gotcha. Um, yeah, most of the, I've my familiarity is RPGs and games in which you can come again. But I have definitely played games that are permadeath, so I can relate. Go. As they laid down the groundwork for Dragon Quest, they made what we recognize now to be some really smart design choices that are, were really genius for then and and still for now. So, for instance. At the start of the game, you can see the Dragon Lord's castle, which is your goal for the end of the game. So your goal is clearly defined right for the beginning. Now, you can't walk from point A to point B. There's a long roundabout way to get there, but you can see your goal, right? We still, we still use that 
uh, as a design in video games to this day. So I'll be honest with you. One of my absolute favorite things about Elden Ring. When you're playing Elden Ring and you have the introductory tunnel and you step out of it into the world for the first time, you can literally see the end of the game. Now, you don't know it's the end of the game at the time because of the way Elden Ring is designed. But as you progress through the game and you go through it a second time and you recognize what it is, you can see your goal, even though it takes you 100 hours to get there, you can see your goal from the beginning. So this is a design philosophy that people still use to this day, which is just brilliant and fascinating. And there's all sorts of cool psychology and stuff behind it, right? They used bridges to signify changes in difficulty. And they implemented a level progression that starts out with a high rate of growth, but decreases in time to give people incentives to play into the game. And these are just a few of the creative ways that they were able to create an open world that's not technically blocked physically in any way. In fact, there are some of us that believe Dragon Quest is one of the first nonlinear games out there because of the way this is designed. The only obstacles to the player are monsters that can kill you if you're unprepared as a player. So if you don't level up enough and you stumble across an area with higher level monsters and you die, that's the only physical block. You can walk through there. If you can win the fight, you can keep going. It's an open world otherwise. Definitely been there before. Right? Right? So Hori and the programmers sat down. They designed the game. They had the design, they had the team of programmers that could make it happen, and next they had to figure out the art. But who could they help to enlist with that, Rob? Uh, I'm going to guess another well-known name. Another well-known name. So because they wanted to appeal to everyone, they sought out the help of an artist that, yes, was well-known by everyone. So after graduating from a creative high school, Akira Toriyama took up a job designing posters for an advertising agency. After three years, he grew tired of that environment, got lazy about it, started coming into work late, started like not really focusing, and eventually he just up and quit. So he's 23 years old, he doesn't have a job, he's needing money quick, and he's out and about, I think it's a coffee shop, don't hold me to that, but he sees an ad for an amateur contest in Kodansha's Weekly Shonen magazine. So he submits some manga. He had been drawing things since he was a kid. He wasn't serious about manga in any way, shape, or form. He had dabbled in it a few times for friends, but it definitely wasn't his focus. But like I said, here he is, 23, no job, needs money, sees a contest, submits something. But that submission doesn't meet deadlines time-wise, and so nothing happens from it. But in the meantime, he sees that another magazine, Weekly Shonen Jump, accept submissions for their newcomer award every month so he resubmits the manga there kazuhiko torishama uh gets the entry and reads his manga really enjoys it but he can't do anything with it because it's a parody of star wars and not an original work so torishama sends toriyama a telegram he says it's great Keep drawing, keep sending me stuff. Let's see if we can make this work. This results in a manga called Wonder Island, which was Toriyama's first published work. 
It was published in Weekly Shonen Jump in 1978. However, with that being said, they had a reader survey every issue and it came in last place. And this was just discouraging to Toriyama. He considered quitting manga. But for some reason, he stuck with it. He wrote and was able to publish Wonder Island 2. And it also flopped. So for about a year, he recalls writing story after story after story. By his accounts, for that course of a year, he wrote around 500 stories, and they were all rejected. <laughs> wow. So at some point, Torishima encourages him to draw a female lead character. Toriyama agrees, and he creates Tomato, the cutesy gumshoe in 1979 which had a little bit of success. So jumping off from that high, Toriyama decides to draw another female lead, and in doing so creates a character called Dr. Slump. Now Dr. Slump follows the adventures of a perverted professor and his small but super strong robots. And this ends up being a huge success. It was serialized in Weekly Shonen Jump from 1980 to 1984. But wanted to end the series within six months of creating it. So the editors would only let him end quit if he agreed to start another series for them afterwards. Which he did. And for a while, he worked on what we call a number of one-shots. They're not serialized. They're one, one comic, one magazine, and they're done. Some of which had success. Nothing really stuck enough for them to consider serializing it. I mean, he won a few awards with the one-shots, but it wasn't anything that was mind-blowingly successful. So at one point, his editor, uh, Tori Shama, suggests that he create a kung fu shonen manga since Toriyama was a fan of kung fu films. And this led to him creating a two-part manga published in the August and October of 1983 issues of Fresh Jump called Dragon Boy. Dragon Boy follows a boy who is adept at martial arts and is escorting a princess on a journey back to her home country. Dragon Boy was really well received and the concept was evolved by Toriyama into what is his best known work, which comes as no surprise as what it is, does it, Rob? None whatsoever, Dave. Yes. Dragon Boy became the Dragon Ball series. And that got its start in 1984. It was serialized in Weekly Shonen Jump from 1983 to 1995. A long time. And it was insanely popular during its run. Pretty much the, the, the golden age of this magazine was in that period thanks to Dragon Ball. So yes... When the team at Chunsoft needed an artist known by everyone, they turned to one of the best-known manga artists at the time, who was super popular a few years into the Dragon Ball series, none other than Akira Toriyama. The funny thing is, is he later admitted that he was pulled into it without even knowing what an RPG was. <laughs> And that it made his busy schedule even more hectic, which irritated him. But in the end, he was glad to have been part of the game after having a chance to play through the finished project. Wow. 
I know, right? That's that's pretty crazy. Isn't it crazy that like, like all we know him of as in our time, right, is Dragon Ball, and like he didn't. That's not his start. Like he failed a lot before then, a lot, a lot actually. You know? Yeah, I mean, five hundred unsuccessful stories, and he continued going. I mean, that's that's perseverance, and that shows that you know sometimes you just got to keep following your passion because you never know when one thing's gonna hit big and become one of the largest franchises around. Very true. So with our out of the way, the team had to find someone to compose music for the game's soundtrack. But in this case, unlike all the others that they had to go out and seek, their composer actually found them. So Koichi Sugiyama was a music lover. He grew up in a home which was said to always have music playing. He graduated from the University of Tokyo and then went into the reporting section at Nippon Cultural Broadcasting in 1958. He quickly joined Fuji TV as a director later that year. In 1965, he left the station to become a freelance music director, and by 1968, he had transitioned into a musical composition director and or- into a musical composer and dire- with orchestration. Yeah, worked on musical composition and orchestration. I don't know why I couldn't get that out. Throughout the 1960s, 1970s, and the early 1980s, he composed music for several musicals, for commercials, for animated movies, for various television shows. And because of that, he was a well-known music director or orchestrator or composer or whatever you knew him as throughout Japan. He was well-known. So it really came as a surprise to the team at Enix when one day a fan letter showed up regarding one of their games from the early 80s. This fan letter was written by Koichi Sugiyama. The team at Enix was super impressed with the depth of his knowledge about video games and his appreciation of the games that he talked about, and so they decided to ask him if he wanted to create music for their games, and he was on board. So in 1986, he joined the team at Enix and he composed music for a game called Wingman 2. It wasn't a very big project. He didn't do all the music, but it was successful. At least the music was. So later that year, he was asked to work on his first major video game project, Dragon Quest. Now, the funny part about his involvement in Dragon Quest is he later said that it only took him five minutes to compose the original opening theme to the game. And that melody that took him five minutes to compose is the same melody that we still use in the modern versions of the game today. Wow. I know, right? Oh man, I can't imagine. So we've got a big time artist in Toriyama. We've got a big time music composer in uh, in Sugiyama, a hotshot game designer, Hori Yuji, and a hotshot programmer in Koichi Nakamura. Like, for all purposes, this was kind of a dream team that was designing this video game, uh, a a role-playing game, which was a relatively unknown genre for Japanese audiences, you know? And they did. They wrote the game um, and finished it, completed it, and put it out to the world on May 27th, 1986. Now, 
that's not where it stopped. It came over to North America, obviously. We know it as Dragon Warrior. It's named Dragon Warrior because at the time there was a pen and paper RPG called Dragon Quest, and they didn't want to infringe on its trademark, so they changed its name. It was advertised as being very comparable to Legend of Zelda, which is kind of fair. Um, and by the time it came out, I think there were three of them in Japan. We got the first, so we were always a little bit behind them, uh, to be fair. Um, but yeah, it came out, it came out here. Um, and it was a big success. Um, in Japan, it sold 1 million copies in the first six months, which is crazy for a game back then. Ended up selling 1.5 million copies before they started re-releasing it and stuff. It won game of the year in various publications. It, it, it took... It took everyone by surprise. Let's be honest there. No one expected a role-playing game to no one expected a role-playing game to be that important. You know what I mean? Right. I you never would have thought. But but yeah. It it did. It absolutely did. Um Dragon Quest for it's a turning point. It's a very pivotal pivotal moment in video game history. It is probably, you know, I talked about Ultima and I talked about wizardry being very important for the beginning of the RPG genre. This is like the genre builder. Like we've talked about that before. We're like, Civilization may not have been the first 4X game, but it's definitely the one that put on the map, right? Um, yeah, or, it's safe to say. Yeah, so this is kind of, uh, you know, very much in the same boat where, like, they may have built the genre, but Dragon Quest is what brought it to the masses and really put it on the map. Not only that, but it changed role-playing games you know ultima and wizardry are dungeons and dragons based they were gameplay first and story second and this was the opposite this was the probably the one of the first games definitely in this genre in which the narrative the story came first and the gameplay was designed to work around that in fact according to shigeru Miyamoto, the probably most famous game designer of all time guy who created Mario among other things, Zelda and got, you know, we know him. Um, he believed that dragon quest basically changed the nature of video game development as a whole, because it made scenario writers far more important than they were prior to its release. So it's literally for so many people, the game that made stories, the important part of video game development because before that it, it just, it wasn't, you know, guess I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, it's crazy. It, 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 it's crazy. It, it's crazy. Well, and let's talk about what it did for all the people there. Right. So Yuji Hori, uh, was, was kind of well known. I mean, he was writing for Shonen jump. He was writing a video game column for Shonen jump as a freelance writer. 
Um, so he was kind of known. Um, but this game made him a household name in Japan. Like, literally, like, what Steven Spielberg is to us in the U.S., you know? It, it made him a household name. It increased... I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't know. It did it for Hori. It gave more notoriety to Toriyama. Um, it gave more notoriety to uh, Naka, Naka, uh, Nakamura. I mean, it just it did it did so much for absolutely everyone. Um, it's just I think that this game is in a weird place, right? Because when we talk about these early games in the RPG genre, we talk about Dragon Warrior, and we also talk about what other game, Rob? We've covered it before. Uh, I've been trying to rack my brain and remember it. What other role-playing series is stupid popular? You know, I really don't have an answer for you, Dave. Number seven. No, I, I don't. I don't. I, I, I just, I can't think of it. <laughs> so coming out of japan at this time right you have dragon warrior on enix side and you have final fantasy on the square side we did a final fantasy episode i don't know it couldn't have been that long ago was it uh i want to say it was the end of last year yeah you're right it's a december release and we learned about Square being a mining, wasn't it? A, no, it was an electrical company at one point. Wasn't it the software a subsidiary of electrical company at one point? Something like that. It was some really weird. I don't know if it was energy or electric yeah. exactly, but yeah, it was something along the lines of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So Enix has got Dragon Warrior. Final Fantasy has, um, Square has Final Fantasy. You have both these games that came out in influential time. Final Fantasy came on the coattails of Dragon Warrior. And Final Fantasy was definitely more popular globally. And so in a lot of ways, that has led to the Final Fantasy series overshadowing the Dragon Warriors, Dragon Quest. It's Dragon Quest nowadays. It's no longer Dragon Warrior. Eventually, they were able to bring drag the Dragon Quest title back to state side. Now, all the modern ones are Dragon Quest. Um, but yeah, I mean, Final Fantasy, they're both super important games for similar reasons. Final Fantasy 2, very narrative driven, takes the same. I mean, basically, Dragon Quest came out and the team at Square said, let's make that. That's literally where Final Fantasy came from. We think we can do that, but better. I think that was actually what it was. And they took this narrative-based, streamlined, role-playing template, and they made the Final Fantasy game with it. And then it, for whatever reason, appealed to people and got the global recognition, and that snowballed. So just on the merit of that, the Dragon Quest inspired the other that snowballed into Final Fantasy. These these are the genre builders. This is where your role-playing genre comes from, like, more than anything, you know? And there are so many other games that uh, that also take inspiration from Dragon Quest. I, I, the oh, I, I know there's a lot of games now. I'm drawing a blank. One of the only ones I can think of was uh, Shigesato Itoi. He later said that Mother, 
the Mother series, or Earthbound as we know it here in the United States, they basically took the Dragon Quest template and they 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 used it as a template and they kind of changed the theme from this fantasy concept to like a more modern like from the suburbs u.s concept and that's where like the the basis for mother came from so there are lots of other games genres so on and so forth that take their inspiration from here absolutely and was it mother that also had the dream team that akira was a part of or was that final fantasy i remember there was another one we talked about chrono trigger that thank you it was chrono trigger yeah it's chrono trigger yeah chrono trigger definitely has it and needless to say dragon quest it's not a one-off right it is a series it is still going to this day um we are eagerly awaiting the 12th game in the series called the flames of fate they announced that in 2021 it still doesn't have an official release date. We got Dragon Quest XI in 2017, so it's kind of been a while since we've had one. But yes, there have been 11 main entries in the series since 1986. And there have been spinoffs. There was the Slime series, which focuses on the slimes which is like the main fun cutesy character from the series there's a dragon quest monster series um there is the dragon quest builders which is another one dragon quest wars theater rhythm dragon quest this is this is this is a, a basically it's a it's a it's a big deal the video game industry is such a big a big deal. What it is to Japan and what it is to the industry that Dragon Quest is known as Japan's national game. Wow. No joke. Because of what it did for building the genre and what it did in general for putting Japanese developers on the map alongside nintendo and mario and so on and so forth but like this was a big one this was a big one so japan's national game that's pretty crazy when you think about it i know let's say like what would you consider america's game at that like i i wouldn't even have any idea to know i don't know either because so many of the games that we like we associate with like our games specifically in this time period a lot they were japanese right exactly that's that's what i'm thinking like pac-man japanese mario japanese space invaders to be fair we did have pong i mean we did get this show going so i mean yeah they just took what we did and did it a million times better <laughs> they kind of did um i was reading something interesting as i choked in the middle there dragon quest at one point became so popular in japan that if someone was asked to draw slime a japanese person is most likely likely to draw a shape similar to that of the slime creatures in dragon quest and not like slime or ooze like some of us would think here stateside nice right right that that's definitely pretty crazy and you think of the cultural uh, 
differences because of geographic locations and the popularity of things within them. Yeah. They've remade these games. They did a remake for the Super Famicom, uh, Dragon Quest 1 and 2. They remade them together, put them on a cartridge, released it for the SNES. I don't know if they got it for the SNES. Yeah, they got it for the SNES. They did Game Boy Color remakes too. Um, they've ported it from this thing to that thing. Um, it's got re-released on android and ios so chances are if you want to play it on your phone they're on your phone uh they're on the switch online store i think uh they're all over the place so if you want to play them they're really really you know they're out there they're able to play you have all your spin-offs they've written books about it you know there are Books about it, books about the spinoffs. Uh, there was, speaking of Weekly Shonen Jump, beginning in 1989, there was a Dragon Quest manga that was serialized in it. Um, and there have been separate, sev- several separate mangas that have been published in the meantime. There's one called The Emblem of Roto, which was published in 21 volumes between 91 and 97. There was an anime movie based on another manga from 96 let me see as of 2019 we've sold 21 million copies of dragon quest manga Jeez, louise that's kind of crazy huh yeah that's a lot of manga there dave manga manga is it manga manga was i butchering it the whole time i wasn't gonna say it i let the people why do you let me do Manga. this to myself? I don't read this stuff. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it's been a long time since I've read any myself. Uh, that was still before Attack on Titan Season 3 released, I think. What is it? Manga? Manga? Manga. 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 They've done anime for it. There have been two series. One ran between 89 and 91, 43 episodes. Another one ran for 46 episodes between 91 and 92. And actually, they did one recently. Um, they adapted the second anime series into yet another adaption from October 3rd, 2020 to October 22nd, 2022. So they've actually had a modern one, too. There have been two films in the series. There is a virtual reality, Dragon Quest VR. It is a... What is it? That's interesting. It it was specific to like a VR store in Japan. It has since been closed. So that's boohoo. But kind of interested. But yeah, that's 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 Dragon Quest, man. That's um That's Dragon Quest. Heartbeat. Artie Piazza. Who's Artie Piazza? Couldn't tell you, Dave. They made Dragon Quest 3 through 7. Oh. Level 5. We know Level 5. Level 5's been making all the modern. They made Dragon Quest 8, for example. Level 5 also made Professor Layton um, and Nino Kuni. We never really talked about Nino Kuni. but we Yes, talked I don't know that one, but I know Layton. You don't know we Nino Kuni? No, not by name. I may have seen it again, but the name does not ring a bell at all. You know the guy who wrote um, 
Howl's Moving Castle and uh, Miyazaki, the that the really great uh, anime director and studio. Yeah, Nino Kuni is a video game made by that studio. Oh, yeah, I've never heard of that one. There's two of them, and I, if you like that their movies, you'll love the game. Like honestly, it's great. So, but yeah, I mean, I can't. I'm trying, but I can genuinely. I I can't stress enough how important dragon warrior was to the role-playing game genre it like i said it completely revolutionized things i i remember dragon warrior which it would have been my case i would have been really young i mean this came out in the year i would have been two that you know this came out i would have been five when it was released in the united states that's probably seven, eight. I don't know. This would have been early NES. I remember playing it. And I don't remember understanding it. I don't remember getting anywhere in it. I never really hit my role playing stride until the Super Nintendo, which is when I was old enough to kind of understand how these things worked. Let's be fair. Um, but I do remember this game. I remember not. I remember being just thoroughly confused about where to go or what to do, which makes a whole lot of sense in hindsight since it's open world and, um, and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, no, especially being the first of its kind, and you probably hadn't played a whole lot before that. Yep. Uh, that can be a little overwhelming. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. I remember liking it because it reminded me of Zelda 2, which has that same kind of o- overworld, like an open oven o- overworld. Um, but I, I had zero concept on how to play this game. I did eventually, I have played it in the interim. Like, I I went back as I was older. I played through all those early Dragon Quests and Final Fantasies, and I I nipped them all out, you know, in my teenage slash early adult years. So I can't say I've never played it. But as a child, I had absolutely no concept of this game whatsoever. But I will tell you that uh, I have played the series later, starting with, I think, seven, eight nine i did not play 10 we'll see about the next one in the series but i've been playing them and i still genuinely enjoy dragon quest games they are i mean they're it's a good series in my opinion it's a good series they're still story based still have really fascinating characters still have really fascinating world building um i am i'm honestly still a dragon quest fan not as not as much as final fantasy but i think that's just you know over here in North America, Final Fantasy was a bigger thing. But I, that doesn't mean I don't like Dragon Quest, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, it's easier to like what was normal here and what you grew up with and was more mainstream. That is correct. And that, my friends, the Dream Team, came together to make Dragon Quest one of the most influential games in the role-playing game genre. And that's that's it. That's its story. There you go. Congratulations, we did it. Yay, woo! It inspired a lot of other games. Uh, like we said, uh, M- Mother. And, um, you know, it got inspiration from Portopia. And gave inspiration to Hideo Kojima. And, you know, uh, people that made it, like Toriyama, would later go on to create Chrono Trigger. You know, these are all stories that tie into one another there are stories that we've covered before 
And if you'd like to learn and check out these old stories, you could do so by going to our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can our audience do by going to our website? Well, Dave, what else can be found there? Calendar of previous and future episodes can find links to various things such as our social medias. I can be found on various platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I am on various platforms as David is wrong. That he is. Yep, that's me. Is there anything else there, Dave? I'm sure know. there's other stuff there, but yeah, you can go there and check it out and see what see what you like. Yeah, see what you like. See what you like. Each week, we tell you a story relevant to one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, we covered Dragon Quest, uh, which was originally released for... What was it originally released for, Rob? Uh, that, that would have to be the Famicom. That would have to be the Nintendo Entertainment System Famicom in May of 1986. By telling you these stories, we learn. That's the best part about it. Each week, as we do research for our episodes, we learn things. And it's very fulfilling getting to learn week in and week out. And take that and, um, yeah, and, and getting to teach you. So as part of our acknowledgement and commitment to the teaching learning cycle, we like to go roundtable and talk about what we've learned today. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, while I learned a lot about the game, I think my biggest takeaway is just knowing how many times Toriyama failed and still kept going. Um, that's, that's pretty crazy to know. I mean, obviously it's easy to know someone when they're successful, less so when they're not so much, but just to know that he continued after so many failed attempts, it just definitely makes you think how many other successful people do we know out there that have followed the same thing? They've come to face a lot of, uh, a lot of failures, but because they never gave up and kept pursuing it, they're huge now. Or... How many people out there are just one more attempt away from being the next Toriyama? But how many of them just stop because they keep failing? It's true. It's true. I like the I I like mine half glass half full perspective. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, absolutely. No, it's definitely good to have that. But I mean, but on the same front. You never know. That person could be the 499 and they never want to make it to 500. But that 501 could be the one. Could be. Very well. What about be. yourself, Dave? What, what's your big takeaway? Uh, it's very similar for me. I didn't know anything about Toriyama, so that was really fascinating. Um, I didn't know anything about the music composer. That was fun to learn that he was a fan and sent in a fan letter. And then became a video game composer. He did it for a while after that, to be honest with you. Composed for years upon years upon years after that introduction. I, this is just a fascinating story all the way around. Um, I, I really enjoyed this one. I really enjoyed this one. You know, I went in having a basic knowledge. I mean, I we, we've talked about Hori before. We covered Portopia. We talked about it, you know, with Kojima. 
We kind of talked about this with Wizardry and Ultima. We've touched base. We, we've circled this game for a long, long time. So I had a basis in it. And even when you have a basis in it, you still get surprised by things. Um, and of course, it was a lot of fun. I knew you in particular would really enjoy uh, Toriyama's uh, background, which is why I included that in there for you. So this was just fun. This was a fun game to cover. And that'll do it. That's the story of Dragon Quest, Japan's national game. So, Rob, before I take it out of here, is there anything you would like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do have to take a quick moment to say thank you to so much for everyone for listening. We hope you're enjoying listening to us week in and week out. And if you're not, well, thanks for listening anyway. Awesome. Well, on that note, let's look at next week. Next week, we're all going to learn about Nintendo's first gaming console, which is the Color TV game. As part of its story, we'll revisit the history of Nintendo, and we'll look at all the variations of this specific console as we talk more in depth uh, than we have before about the first generation of consoles altogether. So stick around and join us as we sit around a table and play cards on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Scooby-Doo-Bum-Dum-Bum-Boo-Doo.